If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis, Genesis chapter 42. If you are new to the Bible or new to church, it's been a long time, it may help you to know that those large numbers in that in the Bible are the chapter divisions, the small numbers are the verse divisions, and we are going to look through the entire chapter of Genesis chapter 42. Is Before we begin, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? as we begin to submit our hearts to the Lord. Father, this, this is indeed your word, and we confess at this moment that we need it. We need it more than, than bread. We need it more than our next life. We, we need your word. For your word tells us, and your, sa- your son, our Savior, reminds us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Father, we confess that we so often neglect your word. We do neither either esteem it nor study it as we ought. But today we pray that by your spirit you might give us submissive hearts that we would both hear and do all that you call us to. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have ever gone to a new place, whether that's to someone's home you've never been to or uh, to a new church, perhaps just to another state, you can feel the, especially if that state is south, far south of us, so that the accent is significantly different, you can very quickly feel like the outsider. And you know that it is true that outsiders, especially in many places, they are often viewed with suspicion, are they not? You drive through a place, my dad always taught me when I'm driving through another state, not Pennsylvania, slow down a little bit, police might be on the lookout for cars, out-of-state cars. I don't know if that's true or not, but I've always heeded that advice. We tend to view outsiders with a a degree of suspicion that we do not view those that we know. And that idea is absolutely here in our passage this morning. The brothers of Joseph, as they are coming into Egypt, are going to be open to suspicion. And in fact, it is that suspicion and their fear of being held in suspicion That drives some of the story of our text. Before we launch in, it it might be helpful for some of you who are are new to the study of Genesis, or we had Easter last week, and you may have forgotten all that we have touched on up till now. But we've been walking our way through the book of Genesis, and we are now getting close to the end. The, The light is at the end of the tunnel, but we have been over the last number of weeks, following this young man named Joseph and his story. Joseph has 11 other brothers, and Joseph's family has been particularly called of God. In fact, we will see that we have seen that this family, God has made a a special, a special covenant relationship with them by Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. And now from Jacob to Jacob's 12 sons, of which Joseph is the 11th. But Joseph's brothers, little more than scoundrels, 
hated Joseph for a variety of reasons. They, they sold him into slavery. He's taken down in, into Egypt, sold into, as a slave there. Joseph is at one time, though, he, he works faithfully, honestly, with integrity, and he is given favor in the eyes of his master so that he, as a slave, has incredible authority, yet he is falsely accused and falsely condemned, and he is sent to prison, where once again, despite the circumstances that he he is in, he continues to honor God, continues to work faithfully. God blesses him, and he rises up as a prisoner to be the leader of the prisoners, to to serve those. Through all this, God in his wisdom has guided and directed, and now Joseph in, a, in an incredible rags-to-riches type story, Joseph is brought out of prison. He is now serving, not merely as an important officer within Egypt. Joseph is, a, is serving as the, the second in command, under only Pharaoh himself, the king of Egypt. And it is through wisdom that he has displayed, it is through God's providential grace and mercy, that has brought him through this winding path to this position. And what has brought all this about is this famine that has been predicted in the previous chapter, in chapter 1. We read in verses 53 to 57, Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt, they ended and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, you you may remember that God had revealed what was going to come. He had revealed this in a in a set of dreams to Pharaoh. Pharaoh had no way. He knew the dreams meant something, but he didn't know what. No one could direct him. No one could help him. But the baker, rather the cupbearer, remembers Joseph and how he had interpreted his dream while in prison. And he brings Joseph to Pharaoh's attention and through that, Joseph is able to rightly interpret the dream and then give wise counsel as well. And Joseph is given this position of being in second in command. And so he is now leading as the seven years of famine begin to come. Joseph is leading in all the land of Egypt. There alone there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. And the famine was over all the face of the earth, over the entire region. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. So this This famine is so severe, but it is not mere localized. It is broad. The word there, over all the earth, gives us a picture that over the whole known world at that time, there is famine. And there is bread alone in Egypt. And so those in Canaan who are in another country hear about it. They, they, to get food, they are forced to come to Egypt. And we see this in the opening chapter, I'm sorry, the opening verses of chapter 42. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Apparently they're not doing very much. They're, they're not sure what to do. And he says, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy food for us there that we may live and not die. Think about this for a moment, the severity of this crisis. 
We know from recent years, months, what it is like to walk into the grocery store and there be an item that you may like, perhaps a brand of an item you may like, and it's not there anymore. When there was that particular time in 2020 when it was, of all things, toilet paper. You go to the toilet paper aisle and there's nothing there. and You see the people walking out of the store with, with mountains and carts full of toilet paper. What are, they, what are they doing with all of that? But imagine a crisis so severe that we go into the grocery stores and there is nothing. The shelves are entirely bare. Not of one or two items, but of all the food items. Imagine that the only way for you to get food is not for you, okay, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on my phone, I'm going to start calling around, who has what? No, it is, it is for you to walk to another country to get food. It's that severe. This is something we, we can't even begin to fathom. A crisis that, by God's grace, we will never ourselves experience. This famine is, is so severe, and in light of this crisis, you, you might be thinking that what's driving this chapter is this fight for survival. I mean, that would be legitimate. Here is a crisis. You either are going to go to Egypt by foot with some, with some animals, but those animals are pack animals. You're going to go. You're going to get there. You're going to load up, and you're going to bring all that everyone can carry. You're going to bring it home. And that is what's going to feed you and your entire family for a period of time before you make a return trip. And it would seem that that crisis is at the heart of this chapter, but it's not. That is merely incidental. The real crisis that drives this chapter isn't the absence of food. It is the spiritual crisis of Joseph's brothers. And this chapter is not merely about how God fed the family of Joseph, the family of Jacob, the people of Israel. This chapter is, is the beginning of, of a multiple chapter chunk that drives us to see how God restores his wayward people. In fact, what begins here in chapter 42 will climax in chapter 45 when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. But the crisis here is the spiritual crisis of his brothers. You'll, you'll remember just a bit about how desperate or how, how desperate these brothers were spiritually, how poor off they were. Reuben, we know, he has slept with his stepmom in an attempt to gain power within the family to solidify his, his power as the next patriarch, the next leader of the family as the oldest son. We know about Simeon and Levi, the next two oldest sons. How they commit war crimes and put an entire city to to death. 
We know how their older brothers helped them out and assisted them in that. We, we know also how the, the ten older brothers sold Joseph into slavery. I mean, none of these guys are exactly stand-up characters. So while Jacob may not know what everything happens to his sons, he, he clearly doesn't trust them. And we see that in verses 3 to 4. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain. I'm sorry, we, we see all of this happening. Jo- Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. Clearly, Jacob doesn't trust the rest of the brothers. He may not know what have happened to Joseph, but he knows his son's characters. And he knows that it is not good. And we read in verses 5 and 6, And the sons of Israel went down to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And we see in verse 6 the beginnings of a test. Read with me verses 6 to to just 8. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him and with and with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them, and he spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan, to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Joseph is handling the distribution. He, he sees his brothers coming. There must have been multiple, many distribution points. Perhaps there is one distribution point for those who are foreigners. And Joseph particularly oversees this, perhaps because he knows God's hand or why God has brought him here. Well, however it has been worked out, however it has happened, Joseph is the one, he is on duty, who sees his brothers coming. And he talks roughly to them. He doesn't reveal to them who he is, and they don't recognize him because he is, he is wearing and looking and, a, and talking like an Egyptian. It's been 20 plus years since they have seen him. And so what we have here, his brothers have come, they do not recognize him. And Joseph creates this test. You can see this test begin to be formulated in verse 9. And we see what drives Joseph in this test. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. That is his brothers. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. That, that opening line in verse 9, which is tied to the very end. Joseph remembered his dreams. You remember the dreams that Joseph was given early on as a young man was that his brothers and his family, they would bow down to him. And here they are, they're they're bowing down to him. And Joseph remembers that. But the reason that is important at this stage and the reason it is tied in the very next phrase with him treating his brothers roughly and accusing them of being spies is because Joseph is trying to present or he's trying to create a a test that will find out what is in his brother's hearts. Joseph remembers what has happened before. You, you, 
You'll remember he was a young man. He has those dreams. And what is the very first thing he does after he has those dreams? He tells his brothers, right? Some suspect that Joseph is perhaps being arrogant, proud, and that's why his brothers hate him. I suspect that his brothers would have hated him no matter what he did, no matter what he dreamed. Anything that would have suggested that he is going to be at the forefront someday of the family would have caused his brothers to be angry with him. But I think what this shows is that Joseph is learning from what he did before. If he's guilty of anything from when he was a young man, it is that he lacked wisdom. There he was simply filled with exuberance. You're never going to believe what I dreamed last night. One day, you're all going to bow before me. Isn't that great? Isn't that something that every one of our older siblings wants to hear from us? Joseph lacks wisdom, but here he displays it. Here Joseph, in remembering that, in remembering how God has led and directed him, in remembering his dreams from before, he is remembering why he is here. He is here not to get revenge. He is here not to be petty. He is here as God's servant. He is here as God has sent him. Joseph is acting in light of that. He is acting with wisdom. And we see this in verse, in the end of that verse, he, he accuses his brothers of being spies. This, we still see this today. The accusations of, against those who, who come into our country, spies, terrorists, murderers, whatever the accusation may be. In there, it was no different. They were equally concerned about their national security. And you can imagine a time like this, even though Egypt is the one that has the most food, as the country that has the most food, they are also the one country that every other country is going to want to come to and to conquer so that they can take their food. Wars have started over less. And so Joseph, seeing that they have come in, knows that they are outsiders, levies a, an, accusa- an accusation against them that is going to carry weight, and, and for which there is almost no defense. But the brothers do defend themselves. We see in verse, beginning in verse 10, they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. They go on in verse 11. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Of all the things that these brothers are, honest men is not one of them. I mean, the, these men are liars. They are cheats. They are, these are the worst kind of scoundrels ever. We're honest men. Joseph. They're telling Joseph that they're honest men. I wonder what Joseph was thinking about in that moment. Really? Honest men, you say? They go on. They reveal that they're, they tell them they're honest men. Joseph says, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. You've come to see where we're weak. You've come to spy us out. And they said, your servants, they begin to reveal more than they, re- more than they mean to. 
Your servants are 12 brothers. Look, we're, we're not brothers from, we're not merely men from another country. We're actually all a part of one family. We're, we're 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today. That's why there's only 10 of us. Oh, and there's another one of us who's, who's no more. Which is a really vague way of saying, we think he might be dead. He also might be here as a slave. We're not sure, but he's no more. Verse 14 to 20. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, saying, you are spies. In this manner you shall be tested. All right, so he's going to lay down a test here. How can these men prove that they are spies? Unlike our judicial system, you're innocent until proven guilty. In there, you are guilty till proven innocent. You've got to show it to me that you're not a spy. So he gives them a test. By this, it'll be tested in this manner. You shall be tested, verse 15. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house. But you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So what is happening here is that Joseph immediately says, I'm going to put you all in prison for three days. At the end of that, you'll have a choice. One of you is going to go back home, get your youngest brother, and by his return with his youngest brother, I'll know that you are telling me the truth. In essence, Joseph is saying, do any of you trust one of you to leave the rest of you in prison to go And then return. After three days in prison, Joseph relents. He changes his mind. Perhaps he he knows his brothers too well. But he changes it up. He says, okay, rather than only one of you going back, I'll let all of you go back except for one. One of you must stay. Joseph is creating a test that puts these brothers in the same position that they put him. And he's not doing it to be vindictive. He's trying to to test them. Have his brothers changed? I mean, how else is he going to find this out, right? He could simply say, hey, I'm Joseph. I just want to know, are you guys different? And the honest men that these men are, I'm certain that they would have told him the truth. How do you trust people who have shown over their lives that they are dishonest, that they are untrustworthy? Joseph can't trust their word. And so he creates this test with wisdom. With wisdom. And he gives the very first mention of God in this. The reason that he gives for changing his mind is, he says, because I fear God. In fact, it's, it's almost as if his mention of God pricks the consciences of his brothers because they don't mention the Lord until Joseph brings him up. And 
Joseph is trying not to be vindictive here. He is trying to show with wisdom and test his brothers with wisdom to find out if they are trustworthy. Joseph has grown. He has grown in wisdom. He has learned in light of God's promises in a world broken by sin, it doesn't mean that you can just go forward. He knows that despite promises of God, that still requires us to act in ways that are wise and good. So in light of all God's presence and promise, Joseph could, as a slave, he could have just said, hey, God sent me here, I'm trusting him, he gave me this promise, I'm just going to kick my feet up and relax, I'll be a terrible slave, it doesn't matter, because I know one day God is going to give me authority and my brothers are going to bow down to me. But that is not wisdom. Joseph shows wisdom and discernment in everything he does. And now, as a man in his late 30s, he is displaying that wisdom. Not only to know what is the right thing to do, but to know the right way to do it. The right right timing, the right words to say. Brothers and sisters, we need to find this wisdom. Wisdom with the decisions that we make in our lives. May they be financial, may they be relational, maybe they be wisdom at work, wisdom with our kids, wisdom with our parents. What do we do when these problems come our way? We may know the right thing to do, and that is part of wisdom. But part of wisdom is also saying, how do I achieve the right thing and get us there in the best way possible? We need wisdom. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5 give us a a picture of why we need wisdom. Verse 4 tells us, answer not a fully, I'm sorry, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest Lest he, uh, lest you be a fool as well. And verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, which is it? Do I answer a fool according to his folly, or do I not answer a fool according to his folly? Do you know how? Do you know when? That takes wisdom. And Joseph here is showing us what wisdom looks like. God has displayed wisdom in all things, in his creation, in providence, in guiding and directing this, this young man, Joseph, through this path. God could have directed him in a whole host of ways, but God directed him with wisdom, first as a slave, then even lower as a prisoner, so that Joseph might be prepared when he is reigning as a ruler. And our God displays his immense wisdom supremely at the cross, does he not? And the question is, how can a righteous and good God, how can he accept and forgive sinners? A just God cannot overlook sin. He cannot. 
Justice can't ignore sin and wrongdoing and still be just. And so God in His wisdom comes in Christ Jesus. And Christ on the cross bears our guilt so that all who trust in Him may be declared righteous in the sight of God. So that our punishment is justly dealt with and paid for by Jesus so that we may come, so that we may be righteous in God's sight, so that we may approach Him. That is wisdom. It is, it is foolishness to the world, but it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. This is the wisdom you and I need. Wisdom is going to take time. We live in a microwave culture uh, with, with Amazon 2 free day shipping. We expect it there like that quickly, immediately. We want change immediately. And this change that Joseph is seeking for his brothers, it takes months, months, if not longer to achieve. And we see the immediate results of this. There's both positive and negative test results. I don't know if you've ever had to, for your job or for, you've gone to the hospital or the doctors and they, they need to take a test, a blood test or some other kind of test. I remember when I was, Melissa and I were first married. We had our, our eldest son at this point, Isaiah. He was just a baby. I was working a new job and like at that job there were random drug tests for the workers and so my, my boss came to me one day and he said, hey, I need you to meet me at this one place. I'll see you there. And I showed up and there were a couple of my coworkers there. And uh, I had seen on the door, I knew, what, I knew it was a testing facility. I kind of figured we're, we're here for drug testing. I knew this was you know, what we were going to have to do at some point. And so I, I go in and it's, it's random drug test day. There's a handful of us getting, our, 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 getting tested for it. And so I go in and they, 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 they run the test and as I'm waiting for the doctor, the, the, the person to give me the, the test results, I'm sitting there and I'm waiting. He comes in. He does his, his little thing and he, I can see he's troubled. And he's looking at the results and he's not giving me an answer. And I ask, is everything okay? And he said, you tested positive. I couldn't believe it. Positive. Like, what have I tested positive for? He said, you've tested positive for everything. <laughs> that morning, and this didn't never happen, but that morning, my, my wife had given me an everything bagel. And I, I couldn't think. I was like, everything bagel? Everything? It really has everything in it. That's why it's so good. (laughs) He was panicking. I was starting to panic. He went to get his supervisor returned. And the supervisor (laughs) 
turned it upside down and said, no, he tested negative for everything. (laughs) False test. Here we get the test results immediately. And they're, they're, they're mixed. We see this in verse, verses 21 to 24. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us. And we would not hear. Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them saying, Did I not speak to you saying, Do not sin against the boy. And you would not listen. Therefore Behold, his blood is now required of us. So there you have the two, the two mixed results. In verse 21, you have the brothers who immediately, their consciences are pricked. They see the similarities of what's being called of them now to what they did to Joseph. And they see this is God. This is justice. We, we deserve this. We, we, do you remember when he pleaded with us? And we're not told that little detail earlier. But here, his cries, his pleas, they have echoed down through the years, haunted these men in secret. Reuben speaks up in verse 22. If, if, if his brothers are feeling the weight of their guilt, Reuben, Reuben is ready to add to it. He's certainly willing to admit some partial guilt here. But do you see how he minimizes his own, his own role? Hey, guys, don't you remember? I said we shouldn't do this, and you went ahead anyway. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. He's still trying to shift the blame, still trying to offload whatever guilt may be here. And the positive and the negative. As a firstborn son, Reuben ought to have taken leadership. And even though he was the one who initially rescued Joseph, he's also the one who conveniently walked away at the critical time so Joseph could be sold. Everything Joseph does, and I'm sorry, everything Reuben does and says, not only in this chapter, but previously and ahead, it is all suspect. Reuben is willing to accept some share of guilt, but he is more than willing to offload whatever he can on his brothers. Friends, this cannot be something that is characteristic of us. Husbands, wives, spouses, we can too easily do that yes but when we are accused. Yes, 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 I did that, but do we as husbands and wives, as parents, do we own our guilt? What about as as people who work? Are you someone who owns their responsibility at work? Or do we shift the blame, minimize our own guilt? I'm sorry, but you know how tired I was. I'm sorry, but I, I hadn't eaten yet. I'm sorry, but I've had a really hard day with the kids. I'm sorry, but it's been a difficult day at work. I'm sorry I got angry. I'm sorry that I did that. But you know, 
you were wrong too. None of these are actual confessions of guilt, are they? And Reuben does what we find ourselves so often doing. The first steps toward being restored to God and one another is to humbly admit and accept our guilt. To say, I was wrong without any, any excuses, without any blame shifting, without any justification or explanation. And we see in verse 23, Joseph weeps, but they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. They returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Walks out of the room, he's, he's tearing up. I think he's tearing up because he misses his family. He wants to be restored, and he can't be yet. I think he's tearing up because he's heard the details. He's heard, he's wondered for years, did they ever care about me? Do they love me? And now he's finding out that his cries have, have burdened them for years, and he feels for them. Whatever it is, he he returns, he binds Simeon up. Why Simeon? I'm not sure. Perhaps Simeon was in particular a troublemaker. We read from there, the brothers return home to Canaan. And and there they, well, let me just read. I'm going to read through the rest of the chapter and we'll work through it rather quickly. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. And I want you to notice that word. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his stack, opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who was lord of the land spoke gruffly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men, we are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father, one is no more, and the youngest is with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so that I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks, that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they, they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. And Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he, this is Jacob, said, My son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. I want you to notice first 
they, they return home, they find the money. First along the way, along an encampment. Remember, this is days of journeys walking, days, many days of journeys walking back. They, they find the money along the way in one of the brothers. That could be a simple mistake. And you remember, Joseph, he did this for them. This is an act of mercy. He has the right. He wants to bless them. They're his family. He loves them. He cares for them. He, he gives them their money back. He charges them nothing for their food. But their guilty consciences don't see this as a blessing, do they? What has God done, not for us, to us? What has God done to us? Jacob himself acts in the same way. This is the effect of a guilty conscience. This is part of how God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God's blessings and mercies, not always signs of his approval, but they are signs that call us to repent and turn back to him. They are often meant to prod us to a deeper humility, to an awareness of our guilt, and to drive us to our knees. Friends, see the kindness of God in your life. See that every breath comes from his hand. Every ray of sunshine this morning, this day, that will warm your skin, comes from the Father of Lights. Every, every bit of laughter, every slice of cake you have ever eaten comes from him who makes all things good. And yet we have spurred and spurned him again and again. And these, they discover their money, they panic. If only one of the brothers had found the money, it would have been an accident, but this is clearly intentional. And now they are terrified. This, this guy is out to get them. They're going to return. He's going to accuse them all over again that they've stolen. And then you see Reuben's offer to his father. In the, in the face of his hopeless situation, we've got to go back. I've got to rescue Simeon. Put Benjamin in my hand. I'll take him. Jacob, Clearly still doesn't trust Reuben. Some calamity is going to follow him along the way. And you, you can still see how Jacob is prizing and treasuring some sons over the others. And you can't, we cannot begin to fathom how, this, how Jacob's speech would have affected negatively all the other sons. Oh, if, if something happens to, to, to Benjamin, then I'm going to go down to grave in sorrow. Who is Simeon? Is he minced meat? I mean, what? don't you care about your other sons? No. No, he doesn't. And Reuben gives this magnanimous offer. Put him in my hand, and if you put him in my hand, I'll bring him back. And if I fail, then, if I fail and, and something happens to Benjamin then you can take my two sons, your grandsons, and you can kill them. And it sounds really self-sacrificial. Except what parent offers someone to kill their child for their own failures? 
Isn't that exactly what Lot did with his two daughters? The men of the city come to him, banging on his door. They want the two guests, and his offer is, take my two, my, take my two daughters. What kind of man is this? This is not the actions of a true leader. In everything Reuben does, he, is, he gives the appearance of leading, but he fails. But if we can give just a, a sneak peek next week, I just want to look at verses 8 to 10 of chapter 43. We're going to cheat. We're going to look ahead. Same situation. Things have gotten worse. Judah goes to his father Jacob. Verse 8, and he says to his father, Send the lad, send Benjamin with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also all our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Do you, do you see how Judah responds here? Judah shows us what a true leader looks like. He doesn't sacrifice someone else up for his own failures. Rather, he offers himself up. Men, let us take notice of this. Husbands, dads, this is what it looks like to lead our homes. Not to put someone else on the line, but to put ourselves on the line. Young men, this is the kind of men you need to grow up into being. Young women, as you look someday and you dream about someday marrying someone, look for someone who takes responsibility. This is a quality we all must cultivate. But more than leadership, this is what Judah pictures for us what Christ does far better. See, Judah says, look, uh, if I fail in this and Benjamin dies, you can hold me accountable forever. But what Christ does, he is held accountable not for what he has done, what for we have done, for what you have done. And Judah, where, where, where Reuben fails, Judah becomes a, a small thumbnail sketch of what Christ will one day picture gloriously, vibrantly, beautifully. What we need is not merely someone to bear the weight of their own guilt. We can do that. That is our problem. What we need is not mere leader. We need a deliverer. And that is Jesus. Friend, this morning, let me encourage you, look, look to Jesus. You and I, we we cannot go to God and bear the weight of our own guilt forever though we one day will. 
We will all give an account for everything we have ever done, for every word we have ever said or typed, for everything we have looked at, for every desire that has entered into our heart. We will give an account to the Holy God. But if we will trust in Christ, we will find that it is not on us, it is not that we will blame our We will not bear the blame of our guilt forever. It is that Christ has borne it for us. Friend, look to him today. Trust in him today. And you will find the truth that Micah 7, 18 to 19 reminds us of. But though our sins are great, God has cast them into a sea that has no depths, has no no bottom. He has cast our guilt into the sea. He has separated us from them as far as the east is from the west. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are infinitely wise having done all things good. And we find in this text people and situations that remind us of things that we have done, mistakes that we have made, and the people and the character that we find traces of in our own hearts and lives. Father, we pray that you will, by your grace, through your Spirit, cause us to follow hard after you. Give us the fear of you that we may grow in wisdom. Give us confidence in Christ that we may do all that you call us to do. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.